My time didn't go off. That's why I was a minute late. I was shocked. Could it be? <laughs> Please find a very comfortable posture. with a core sense of release. One could even say an existential sense of release, of utter letting go. Let your body melt into its natural state, your breathing subside, released, set free, in its own natural effortless rhythm. Let go of all concerns and all objects of mind, all thoughts of the future and of the past. as if you've allowed your mind to go into freefall. But there is no ground where it will strike. It's just utter release. your eyes be open, your gaze vacant, your awareness totally at rest, not exerting itself to extend outwards or inwards to any object or subject.
before your conceptual mind draws a line in space, demarcating outside and inside, before your conceptual mind creates this fantasy, this fiction, rest there before that division is made. No outside, no inside. The words are meaningless. And what could be more obvious to awareness than the presence of awareness itself? What could be more obvious to a fish than the water in which it swims? Rest in the obvious, the effortless. Rest in awareness that is aware of itself. What could be easier? What could be simpler? Compared to this, everything else is is effortful. But when you release all effort, this is what's left. What could be easier? Come up close to the awareness. Don't stray away.
Thoughts come and go, the mind moves here and there. Can you sense an utterly simple awareness that could never move if it wanted to? It hasn't paused, it hasn't stopped. The very notion of motion doesn't fit. There is no coming and going, there never has been. Now go beyond coming close to this awareness. Look inside. Can you find it? There's no thing to find. There's no it, only an open, empty, objectless expanse. How can you say it exists? It's so clear. It illuminates everything. So how can you say it doesn't exist? The words don't mean anything. Exist, not exist. They don't apply.
thoughts arise and pass, appearances of all kinds arise and pass. This empty space that is luminous never comes into existence, so it never goes out of existence. No birth, no cessation. all the thoughts and images that arise within this open luminous space are nothing but the creative expressions of that luminous awareness. They do not exist outside of it. They are nothing other than displayed. this simple, clear awareness. And there are so many, how can this awareness be one?
But when you rest in that stillness that is not the absence of motion, but transcends the very possibility of motion, that stillness beyond time, the very notion of many, of multiplicity, has no meaning. So how can it be many? When you are no longer attending to what it is not, when you are no longer attending to what is left is awareness. So now for a little while, do nothing. Desire nothing. And be nothing. Release all words and concepts. And simply rest in the clear cognizance of your own awareness. In silence.
Lasso. When sometimes Rigpa, or pristine awareness, is referred to as ordinary consciousness, it's showing you the door. It's showing you the door. That's the door right there, ordinary consciousness. Don't look to the left or the right. It's the door right there in the middle. It's not there in the future. It's not there in the past. It's that ordinary consciousness right there in the present moment. So when you first step through the door, you may not have some like eureka experience, like a euphoria, some breakthrough, like I realized it. But that's the door. That's the door you step through. There's an image I like. Maybe not everybody has heard it. Maybe not everybody on the podcast anyway. I think it's not so bad. And that's of being inside a barn. Remember that one? Being inside a barn. And you lie on your back. You're going into Shavasana. And you're lying on what is called a forklift. You've all seen them, whether you know that term in English. It's just a, a platform with a machine that makes it go up and down. They're everywhere, in construction and so forth and so on. It's called a forklift. I don't know why, but it is. And it just goes up straight up and down. So imagine that you're lying there, nice, totally relaxed in Shavasana. And there's a nice, maybe a nice mattress on that forklift. So you feel very comfortable. And the barn is entirely black. That is, there's no internal lighting. But just right across, straight above you, as you stare straight ahead, there's just the thinnest crack in the very top of the ceiling where the the rafters meet. There's just a crack, and it goes from your left to your right. It's very, very, very thin. But you can see that there's a very thin blue strand of sky shining right through that crack and the rest of the barn is dark. You say, whoa, that's a very narrow crack because everything down below it is all dark and everything above it is all dark. But there's that very thin line of there's the sky. The sky's very thin. So you see it and you focus on it. It's very ordinary, it's not hard to find. And then the person operating the forklift, so you ready to go up? Sure. You can go up, or the barn comes down, depending on you know, what you consider to be stationary. In any case, the distance between you and that thin line of space decreases. And as it decreases, you'll see it gets a little bit thicker. Right across there, across your vision. It gets clearer, a bit brighter. No big deal, but it gets clearer and brighter. Until, let's imagine they're right at the top. You get right to the top, and as you get closer and closer, your eyes are right next to the crack, and you can't even see the barn anymore. Because now, all there is, is your eyes gazing into this utterly open, endless, vast expanse of the sky. And the barn's entirely gone. That was easy to visualize. So something like that. That thin strand, so thin. That's the present moment. It's so thin, isn't it? How long is it? A quarter of a second? A hundredth of a second? Maybe shorter. 
really thin because like it's, it's got like so cramped between the past that's already gone and the future that hasn't happened yet. It's such a, a slender little, almost like oh, so tight, so small, the present moment, isn't it? So cramped, it's like it's got no wiggle room. If it wiggles off here, it goes into non-existence of what hasn't come up yet. And if it wiggles the other way, it gets slipped into non-existence of what already has passed, doesn't exist at all anymore. So that very narrow, thin line of what actually exists seems almost like vanishingly thin until you're right next to it, and then it's all there is. And it's open, expansive, and quite bright. That's just a metaphor. Maybe not so useless. But it's ordinary consciousness, that thin strand of sky, that's ordinary consciousness. So if you're looking for the sky someplace else, you'll miss it. Right? If you think you need to do something, you don't need to do something. The forklift is an operation. You're going to get up there, so just hang out there and keep on not being distracted. Don't get caught up in your thoughts. Don't look around the barn into all that blackness that's just filled with your imagery about the future and your imagery about the past which has no existence whatsoever apart from the imagery. Just don't do anything at all. Just keep your eyes clear, straight, fixed, without an object, just resting there, and then see what comes and rises up to meet you. So ordinary consciousness is the door. It's the crack. The crack between two vast fields of non-existence. Right? Because the past no longer exists, the future doesn't yet. So, but they're so big. How much past is there and how much future is there? They're enormous, right? The past, the, actually what is real seems so slender. And your awareness of it seems so small until that's all there is. And then when that's all there is, that is in fact all there is. So that's it, something like that. So I wanted to step back before I spend a bit of time. I don't think it needs much explaining. This passage that I read this morning, the conclusion of Padmasambhava's pointing out instructions. But before returning to that, which I, as I say, I don't think will take very long this afternoon, I thought we'd go back and get grounded a bit. In these teachings, one can see the uncontested teachings uh, that is any competent scholar says, well, okay, what's, what are the teachings of the Buddha that no serious scholar is really doubting, because there's no reason to doubt. I mean, this, as far as we know, this is the best evidence we have. This is what the Buddha taught, wide degree of consensus. Well, you're looking at the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon, you know. The Mayana accept that, the Bhadrayana, Chinese Buddhist, and so forth and so on. So, let's just go back there. And see what the Buddha had to say about the, the quality of consciousness of a practitioner who's having a direct, unmediated, non-conceptual realization of nirvana. Which again, speaking from, I'm always speaking from, I mean, I'm speaking from the Dzogchen perspective. Uh, nirvana is emptiness. Nirvana is dhammadhatu, right? It's dhammata, ultimate reality. So what's the nature of that consciousness? insofar as words may suggest it, point to it, give some intimation. And so this comes in the Kevada Sutra, in the Pali Canon, where the 
where the Buddha poses the question, where do earth, water, fire, and air find no footing, no grounding, no place to call home? You know, the basic elements. Basic elements in the Buddhist view, this, well, this is, these are the basic elements of the entire physical universe. So where is it that they're not to be found? There's, there's no lodging, there's no grounding, there's no footing. But then further, where are long and short? So now we're bringing in some conceptual categories here. Conceptual, yeah, category. Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form, namarupa, those are big ones, wholly destroyed, completely destroyed, where are they nowhere to be found? All these categories, these prapancha, these conceptual elaborations, where are they not to be found? Right? And then he answers the question. He poses, and then he answers the question. And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous. That's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. So the wording there from the Pali Canon is very familiar. Right? This whole notion of signless. We're very familiar with that, right? Nothing mysterious about it. It's totally clear, isn't it? No target, no Nothing to strike, right? No target. We, we, we know that. Boundless, that's kind of clear. <coughs> All luminous. Unimpeded luminosity. He's just described the mind of an Arya. An Arya. Who is having this unmediated experience where the mind is kind of like, again, to use a bit of the Mayana terminology, where your awareness has, like a cup of water has been poured into another cup of water, and the cup of water in which you've poured it, poured it is nirvana, emptiness, absolute space of phenomena. One is poured into the other, and so now, as soon as you pour it, it's a nice analogy, you can't possibly distinguish. Once one is poured in the other, you can't possibly distinguish this part and that part. It's just, well, it, it, it's just a glass of water, right? Totally indivisible, right? And so he's described the quality of, of awareness of this arya, for whom there are now no targets, no appearances at all, a total absorption of the awareness into this absolute dimension of reality. And the quality of awareness there has no target, no boundary, and it's all luminous. So, quite familiar. In a way, you know, quite familiar. And nothing really contested there. Speak with any really good... Pali scholar, Theravada Buddhist scholar, I said, well, yeah, that's it. That's, that's the Buddhist description. Not that difficult to understand on some level. Now, what's, but it's signless, boundless, all luminous, but now, is that consciousness, speaking now straight from the Pali Canon, and we can say the Shravakayana, the Pali Canon, and Theravada also. I have spoken with some of the finest scholars I find, I've found, and happily, they're so kind, they actually respond to my emails. So I've had some lovely correspondence with Bhikkhu Bodhi, for whom I have very, very high regard. And some others as well around the world. I won't mention all the names, but I've just been very privileged that they actually give me a bit of their time, you know, because I'm not even a Pali scholar, not even Theravada Buddhist. But they still give them, they've been very generous. A number of them have over the years. I write to them, I actually write back. So it's very, very kind. 
And so I listen to what they say. Because I'm nothing. You know, I'm not a Pali scholar. I don't read Pali. Not a, not kind of nothing. You know, amateur. But uh, here's what they say. And also, I, have a, I do have a bit of background in Mahayana. And there's some real concurrence here. Right? So it's not setting up a debate. What's the nature of that awareness? Is it conditioned or unconditioned? Is it momentary or is it not momentary? Is it born or is it unborn? That consciousness, that signless, boundless, all-luminous consciousness. Conditioned or not conditioned? There's one answer. It is conditioned. It is conditioned. This is a living, a living let's say, an Arya, maybe a stream-enterer, maybe a, a once-returner, maybe a non-returner. Could be an Arhat. Once you've realized Nirvana, it's not, it's not a better Nirvana. You know, as you proceed along, once you've had come in Arya, it's the same Nirvana, right? It's the same emptiness. It doesn't get better. Your realization may continue to purify. It does purify, purify, purify until all the stains, all the defilement, all the obscurations, all the kleshas, the seeds of kleshas are all burnt, destroyed. But the realization, that's the same. If it's, if it's already non-conceptual, unmediated, non-dual, well, then that's it. And so imagine a person having that experience right there and becoming an arhat, experiencing that same. And then in the course of time, since the arhat was born, the arhat will die, right? That's what happens. If you're born, that's what happens. And all along during the course of your life, the consciousness that when you slip into meditative equipoise, right, and you are simply dwelling in meditative equipoise and the direct realization of nirvana, it is a conditioned consciousness. There's complete consensus there. Tsongkhaba, yes. We have the coarse mind, we have subtle mind. Coarse mind is just the blah, 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 dualistic, ordinary mind. Well, that's, not good. that's just too coarse. That's not going to enter into a non-conceptual, non-dual realization of, of emptiness or shunyata or nirvana. But the subtle mind, look no further. Because this is the union of shamatha vipassana. This is the union. So you're simultaneously in shamatha, and from the perspective of shamatha, what are you realizing? Well, you're not realizing substrate. You've broken through substrate. Remember, substrate's a veil that obscures dharmadhatu. So in a manner of speaking, then, you've broken through, dharma, broken through the substrate. You're realizing nirvana, absolute space of dharmadhatu. But you're realizing with a mind that is the... Union of Shamadeva Vipassana, so we call in Mahayana terminology subtle mind. You're realizing it was subtle mind, and that is a mind that's arising from moment to moment to moment in this pure stream, undefiled, untainted, uncontaminated, unobscured. But now the Arhat approaches her death. Let's imagine this time as a woman, why not? So there have been certainly women Arhats over time. So now she's approaching her death. Now, once again, there's a consensus. Certainly, I'll now speak where I'm very, very confident. The entire Pali canon and everyone in the Theravada tradition. I mean, I've spoken with some really strong exponents. They know their tradition. They've been studying Theravada as long as I've been studying Mahayana, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. And a lot of them, I think a lot, a lot more, you know. They haven't fanned out and done all the other stuff I've been doing, you know, physics and all that business. And so they've been very focused. People like Bhikkhu Bodhi, really outstanding scholars. And so, what happens to that continuum of your body? Well, that's easy. Your body stops being a body. It turns into fertilizer. It gets burnt. It just goes into dust. It's no longer a body. So that continuum of your body, well, that's, that's, it's no longer a body. It's, it's just now matter. It's just earth to earth. You know, it's gone back into the elements. 
but it's nobody's body, right? So that, but the deal there is it's cut. That continuum of your body, your form, skanda, that's cut. But also the other four of feelings, discernment, mental formations, and then all six forms of consciousness, the five sensory and the mental consciousness. Here's where there's total consensus. There are many points debated in the Theravada. That's fine. Why not? But there's some points they don't debate, and this is one of them. The continuum of all five skandhas gets cut irreversibly. They're terminated. Now, there's no debate on that one. The Buddha was extremely clear that these are conditions. You got those five skandhas by the power of karma and klesha, and now you've cut it. You've cut it at the root, and they'll be terminated, and they will never come back. Total termination, irreversible termination of the five skandhas. Well, now let's get cut to, the, cut to the core here. It's not just your mind, like your feelings, mental factors, not just your coarse mind. It's mental consciousness among the five skandhas. That's within the fifth skanda, there are six, that's the sixth one. Mental consciousness, conditioned, arising, independence upon causing conditions, conditioned by past karma and klesha and so forth, cut irreversibly and absolutely, now shall I say totally, And it'll never arise again. So then there's the question. What now? What now? That sounded pretty dramatic. That sounded pretty final. Like, that sounded pretty final. Like, that even that continuum of mental consciousness with which you are realizing emptiness or nirvana, signless, boundless, all luminous, that condition, condition flow of pure consciousness just got the guillotine, right? So, what's the nature of this nirvana? That one was a description, brief but very much to the point. What's the nature of your, the consciousness that has this unmediated realization of nirvana, right? But, how about nirvana? Please describe nirvana. Well, the Buddha did. He didn't always respond with noble silence. Even for the ineffable, sometimes the Buddha too would give pointing out instructions, so to speak, to nirvana. So then why would anyone ever want to paraphrase that? Let's just read it, okay? So here's the Buddha. I was just reading Padmasambhava. Best thing, get out of the way, let him speak. And I'm going to get out of the way and let Buddha speak. Here's what he says, and this is in the Samyutta Nikaya, and the notes will be coming your way within the week. From the Samyutta Nikaya. The Buddha refers to nirvana as, now here's the direct quote. You'll find this interesting, so you might want to focus. He refers to nirvana as, quote, the far shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unafflicted, Dispassion, purity, 
freedom, shelter, the asylum, the refuge. And now just one more from Udana, another classic from the Pali Canon, the Udana. Calls there, the Buddha refers to Nirvana as unwavering bliss. So Nirvana is deathless. Everywhere said to be deathless. Right? But our hearts die. So, what happens to that nirvana? That imagine that the arhat dies while resting in meditative equipoise. Could happen. Why not? Right? So the arhat's resting, experiencing, realizing all that, just that unwavering bliss and everything that preceded that statement. And then the last breath goes out and doesn't come back in. What happens to the nirvana that the arhat was experiencing? The five skandhas just got the axe. They just terminated completely. What happens to the nirvana that the arhat was experiencing from the moment before death until the moment after death? What happens to that nirvana? I'll now put it in a very pointed way. The Buddha referred to it with all of those positive statements. He didn't just say absence of this, termination of that, cessation of that. There were a lot of positive statements there. And the most, hmm, one that made, well, it was the one I kept for the end. Unwavering bliss. Unwavering. One could say immutable, but unwavering will do. Bliss. Right? Unwavering bliss that is deathless. The arhat dies, nirvana doesn't. So now what? Do we say that the arhat's every aspect, every dimension of the arhat's being, every aspect of consciousness is totally terminated, but nirvana carries on without her? How can there be unwavering bliss with nobody experiencing it? And we can go back to all those other ones. I don't think I need to, right? But let's just glance. Let's just glance. But unwavering bliss, that's kind of a giveaway. Unwavering bliss with no one who's experiencing unwavering bliss? What on earth would that be? It really doesn't make any sense, right? A sheer absence of pain, sure. There's a sheer absence of pain in this eyeglass carrier. There's no pain there, right? Are there any mental afflictions in the eyeglass carrier? None. No suffering, no source of suffering in an eyeglass carrier. I thought I can handle that, but don't tell me that there's unwavering bliss in the eyeglass carrier. That just doesn't make any sense. That's silly. And it's kind of non-debatably silly, right? But just a few more. Peaceful. That doesn't... It's not peaceful. <laughs> the eyeglass carrier, I mean, even that, pro, that part fell off, so don't call it sublime. This is a damaged eyeglass carrier. There's nothing sublime about this one. Everybody see it, yeah. There may be sublime eyeglass carriers, but I don't own one. 
And that's not it. So there's nothing sublime about that. Auspicious? Secure? Wonderful? Amazing? Purity? Freedom? Shelter? Asylum? Refuge? Without there being any awareness of those, they make no sense. But the five skandhas have been terminated. So everything I've said thus far is now, I think, not debated. I mean, I don't know any Theravada scholars and so forth say, oh no, that was a mistake, somebody, that slipped in by mistake. Nobody says that. Not reputable scholars, and there are a number of them, right? And none of the reputable scholars, people who really know their stuff, and there are many of them, none of them say, oh yes, there's a conditioned consciousness that carries on afterwards. None of them say that either. So that's where the agreement ends. And I'm not going to debate because I'm, I'm not qualified to be part of this debate because I don't read Pali and I don't have 10, 20, 30, 40 years of very rigorous training in Theravada and the Pali canon and the commentaries and the sub-commentaries. I don't read Burmese or Pali or Prakrit, let alone Chinese and so forth. So I, my voice doesn't count and I don't have a voice. I'm not pretending to have one. But I've, I've attended to, I've kind of like a... Um, up in the peanut gallery, and I've listened in. And what I've been told, especially by Bhikkhu Bodhi, is there are contemporary scholars within their group, and I'm not, I'm outside that group, who are very knowledgeable, they read Pali, they probably speak Thai, or they speak Singhalese, or they you know, speak Burmese, or what have you. And there are some who say that um, when the Buddha said that the death of an arhat is the termination of the five skandhas, he meant termination. That's the third noble truth. It's termination. Because there is no aspect of that arhat that continues. It's what part of termination do you not understand? It means total termination. And that nirvana is simply the absence of suffering and the absence of mental afflictions, the absence of rebirth, the absence of samsara. It is a sheer termination of that. And all those other adjectives, those refer to the, ar- the nirvana that the arhat experienced while still alive. So what? Nirvana got downgraded? Is that what happened? Does nirvana get downgraded every time an arhat dies? It had all those really cool qualities, wonderful, sublime, amazing, unwavering bliss, but then, at the, but then when the arhat dies, all of those die too? All those wonderful attributes, amazing, blissful, and so forth, they all died. Whoops, can't do that. Nirvana's deathless. Now, I've checked with Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he knows the best. And he, I mean, he's, I think, I think he's our finest translator from the Pali Canon. There are others, very, very good ones. But he's the one I have a personal relationship with and have never met him in person. But I heard from another, another knowledgeable Theravada Buddhist in England this past spring. He said, he's, he's about as old as I am. He's been practicing, studying, teaching for many, many years, practicing, studying for more than 40. And he said, there are no references anywhere in the Pali Canon to some transcendent dimension of consciousness. Form and formless realms, of course, but no, transcendent. That is primordial, unborn, unceasing, There's just no references whatever. All references to consciousness in the Pali Canon all refer to 
consciousness among the skandhas. There's no references, and Bhikkhu Bodhi just confirmed this for me. There are no references at all, anywhere in the Pali Canon, to a dimension of consciousness that is unborn, unceasing, primordial, and so forth and so on. No, every single reference that refers to consciousness is consciousness as something conditioned. So, that being the case, there are reputable Theravada scholars who say, look, every single reference in the Pali Canon to consciousness is conditioned. At the death of an arhat, conditioned consciousness comes to a total end. There's no reference to any other consciousness. Therefore, there's no consciousness. Therefore, the death of an arhat means you've just been terminated. You become non-existent, flat out. But you have achieved freedom. You'll, you'll never suffer again. There'll be no rebirth for you, ever. Right? And now strive diligently to become nothing. Well, of course, that's what the materialists think they get for free. I mean, literally. And I'm not being sarcastic here at all, but the materialists believe, of course, it goes back to Aristotle, that your mind is conditioned by the body, the scientist, Aristotle, had no evidence whatsoever that there's any type of consciousness that is not dependent upon the body. They look, they look for it, in a manner of speaking. Um, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but they have no evidence as far as they are concerned. Here's a respectful statement. As far as they are concerned, they have not seen any evidence. Or if there is evidence, they're not going to look. They don't see any evidence. What there is, well, they turn their heads away to any consciousness that is not dependent upon the body. Which means when the body stops being a body, then you've achieved the third noble truth. I mean, there's no more suffering for you. That's why 800,000 people a year commit suicide every 40 seconds. A lot of them young people. Um, because they're seeing the reality of suffering. That's pretty obvious, and it gets unbearable. And they may also have some sense of the causes of suffering. It's a girlfriend that just broke up with them, or they're just depressed, or whatever, whatever reason, but they're just finding the, the causes are just beating them to death. And they're saying, well, look, there is a fourth note, there is a fourth, there is a path to the cessation of suffering, and that is a, a path to the cessation of my existence. And it's a very short path. And then I'll be finished and I won't be troubled anymore. And therefore, I'll take the third noble truth right now, and I'll make it snappy. So it really is the same vision of the third noble truth by the materialists, and by this, they're called annihilationists. That's not a pejorative term, that's what they're called. Annihilationists among Theravada Pali scholars. Now, of course, since this is their view, by, just by the way, it's not Bhikkhu Bodhi's view. He very explicitly refutes it. But the people who disagree with him are not dummies. They're not people who are just ignorant and stupid and so forth. They're reputable scholars. Right? But he did not agree with them. Which means then, I will say this is an outsider. If the evidence were totally compelling, he'd have to be. Because Bhikkhu Bodhi and other scholars who agree with him are intelligent, well-informed people. And if the evidence is there, then you would have to say, well, that's a bitter pill, but gosh, the Buddha was so clear. If I'm going to be following the Buddha, then I have to accept what he said. And, and he said that the third noble truth is you should get totally annihilated. And so you follow him or not. But 
if the evidence were compelling, then Bhikkhu Bodhi would say, well, I have no choice. I'm a follower of the Buddha, and that's what he said. But he doesn't. And so there are people here who think this, and people who think that. Right? So now I'll step in, because I do have some background in Buddhism. A little bit in Theravada, more in Mahayana. But now here's a, a broad statement for Buddha Dhamma as a whole, but very, very explicit in the Pali Canon. This tanha, tanha, craving, attachment, ducha, tanha, tanha. Well, the Buddha speaks of many types. The craving, attachment for the bounties of the desire realm, the clinging to you know, the pleasures of form realm, of the, of the deva realms and the desire realm, and so forth and so on. There's a wide variety of tanha, of craving and attachment. But one that really goes right to the core, really nuclear, existential craving, right? Is craving for becoming. Craving for becoming. That is craving. That is attachment. That will keep you in samsara. What will become of me? When some of you start slipping into that vacuity and you feel like you can't release enough because you can't trust, you feel there could be some danger that I could get stuck. I could get lost in limbo. I could be annihilated. I could not be able to come back. What will become of me? And they're kind of like, Whoa. not quite wanting to release into that. Not sure that if you release, you'll ever come back. People who fear death, what will become of me? What will become of me? That's craving, attachment for me coming. The Buddha identified this as one of the root causes of samsara. You know what the other one was? Craving for non-existence. Craving for not becoming. The Buddha put those in a pair. They're both causes for samsara. Now that's clear. That's not debatable. I mean, it's everywhere. I just Googled it. It's, you, you can't, I, didn't, I decided not to cite it because it's kind of like throw a rock. You know, you're going to bump into that all over the Pali Canon. It is craving for becoming, craving for existence, craving for not becoming, craving for non-existence, craving and craving. They're both craving. So I'm going to make a statement. Those scholars, who are many of our monks, some of them are monks, who are saying, this is what the Buddha meant by nirvana, total annihilation, and I want it. I'm a monk. I'm striving, ethics, samadhi, wisdom, Really, how can you avoid the obvious? You're craving non-existence. What, else, what other name do you call that? You're identifying the third noble truth, the total termination, and you want it. Why are you not calling that craving for non-existence? Because that's exactly what it is, and how is that even debatable? So to my mind, that ends the debate. Because if that's what you want, then that's craving for non-existence. Then that's what... People are doing every 40 seconds. They're craving for non-existence. So is that the category you want to be, you Buddhist monks? You want to be among the 800,000 per year who are just doing their best to become non-existent? Is that your noble aspiration? Is that your notion of the sublime, the peaceful, the unwavering bliss is termination of every possible experience of any kind forever? Well, that's Bhikkhu Bodhi's conclusion. I think I would have drawn that conclusion myself, but he is a very knowledgeable scholar. He said, that can't be it. But then, interestingly, he said, and then I don't know. And boy, you ask for honesty, then you just got honesty, and I have only respect for that. Then I don't know. 
Like as his refuge is the Dhamma as it's presented in the Pali Canon and as it's explicated by the greatest adepts, commentators, scholars, and so forth for the last you know, couple of millennia of the Theravada tradition. That's his refuge. That's his path. He's a Theravada monk. Namo, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. That's what I say. Right. But he said, I don't know. But I know it's not that. Or at least my view is, it's not that. But if not that, then what? And then he's like, well, I have a question mark. I don't know. So then you have a choice. You have a choice. Do you leave it at that and say, well, maybe I don't need to know. Maybe what I really need to do is simply practice ethics, samadhi, wisdom, realize nirvana, become an arhat, and then I'll know. And then I'll know. And until then I don't know, well, maybe I don't need to know. What I do know is samsara totally sucks. It's really unbearable. The mental afflictions are unbearable. And I don't want that. And the Buddha said this is bliss. It's a refuge. It's secure. The Buddha knew what he was talking about. He'd realized it himself. That's got to be better than what I have. And even though I don't know what it is, I don't believe it's annihilation. I can't imagine what it is, but it's better than this. And that's enough. And I, I suppose, I, I presume that's the approach that Bhikkhu Bodhi is taking. I haven't asked it in so many words, but that's kind of like all that's left. And that's, that's respectable. Don't need to know. I know what it's not, and I knew that everything the Buddha said about it is positive. I mean, that was really a glorious set of characteristics. They truly were. But also, if we take, for example, Bahia, who achieved nirvana so quickly and then got to be an arhat only for a week before he got gored by the cow and died. He only got a, only got a week in nirvana? Only a week? And then, then you know... It seems like a jip. Especially if he'd been practicing for many, 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 many lifetimes up to that point that enabled him to be so ripe that he got one paragraph of teaching by the Buddha and became arhat. He must have been, had an enormous store of merit and all of that. And then to get in the fruition of all that merit accumulated presumably over many lifetimes, he got to enjoy it only for a week. That kind of sounds like, oh, come on. I can't imagine that. that. It's such a raw deal. That's very American, but you know, what a jip. Everybody's got it, yeah? That's kind of like, give the guy a break, you know, really. So then the question is a very simple one. Do you stay within the Pali Canon, within the Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon? Because of course they're not the same. There were multiple schools, multiple interpretations of the Pali Canon. Theravada's one, but it's not the only show in town. It's the dominant one now but not the only interpretation. Or do you say, well, we're not getting an answer there. If there were one, I think Bhikkhu Bodhi would have told me. He's not, he's not closed-fisted. He would not say, well, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, Alan, you're a Mahayana guy. No, he would have told me, I'm sure. We have a nice relationship. So do you stay within the Pali Canon and do you say, look, there's no answer there. So I'm going to look outside the Pali Canon to teachings that may be attributed to the Buddha and that are not incompatible with the Pali Canon but provide answers, clarity, that is not found there. In which case, then you can go to Mahayana. Why not? See what you find. See if you find any answers to that question that are not incompatible with what I said before, but do provide answers where they are not to be found in the Pali Canon. And this brings us to, in the Mahayana Canon, what is called the third turning wheel of Dharma. 
The first one I'm speaking now from the Nyingma perspective, the first one, Four Noble Truths, the foundational teaching, Sravakayana. The second turning of the wheel of Dharma in this Nyingma tradition is now really all about Prajnaparamita, the Prajnaparamita, right? Perfection of wisdom above all, all the multiple Prajnaparamita sutras in multiple sets of verses. And then the third one, though, the third one here in the Nyingma tradition, not focusing so much on Chittamatra, it's rather focusing on Buddha nature. Buddha nature, that's the big central theme. Buddha nature, right? And so there are multiple, multiple sutras that address that. But there's also the great treatise by a traitor to Maitreya that Asanga received, once again in a visionary experience. And he received five works from Maitreya. One of them is called the Uttara Tantra. And that's all about Buddha nature. It's kind of really synthesizing many of the teachings on the Buddha nature given by the Buddha in these Mahayana sutras, but now compacted, synthesized into one treatise. And then Asanga wrote a commentary to that called the Ratnagota Vibhaga. And there he summarized a dimension of consciousness that is not conditioned, that is not among the five skandhas, and which realizes nirvana. This, of course, is called the Tathagagarbha, the womb of the Tathagatas. It's called the Buddha Gotra, the Buddha nature, or really Gotra means family or caste. You're the Buddha family, right? But often translated as Buddha nature. It's called Sugatagarbha. It's called, now we slip into Dzogchen terminology, you're very familiar, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. So here are three themes. But before going there, just briefly, there's, as long as the Arya or the Arhat is alive, there's an asymmetry between what is realized and that which is realizing. Because what is realized is nirvana, and, realized, and nirvana is unborn. It's not conditioned. There it is. No contest. Unconditioned, unceasing. And it's blissful, the refuge, auspicious, wonderful, amazing, and so on. But it's unceasing and unborn and therefore deathless, unceasing, unconditioned. I mean, really, if it's not that, then you're no longer talking Buddhism. That's, again, uncontested. But there's an asymmetry because the awareness of it, the realization of it, that consciousness is conditioned, right? But now the conditioned consciousness, according to the entire Pali Canon, terminates. So if nirvana doesn't terminate at the death of an arahat, but the consciousness that is conditioned does, then the ongoing realization of nirvana must be an unconditioned consciousness. It follows. Otherwise, you just have a big question mark or you have striving after non-existence. Neither of those don't... One sounds just utterly bleak and nihilistic and the other one is unsatisfying. Well, why can't we ask this question? I mean, the Buddha... Why wouldn't the Buddha address that? It's not trivial. When we want to have some vision of where we're going and what will happen at death, why wouldn't the Buddha speak about that? Even though if words cannot capture it, you can point us in the right direction. He certainly did that with nirvana. Nirvana we can't imagine either, but he used all those adjectives. So why not give us some adjectives about, well, what's experiencing it after conditioned consciousness has terminated? So if that's true, now there's no evidence in the Pali Canon, but there's tons of evidence in the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, the Dzogchen, the Mahamudra, and so forth, a dimension of unconditioned consciousness. And so, if there 
if the arhat's experience of nirvana does not terminate at death, but conditioned consciousness does, then now there's a symmetry. There will continue an experience of that nirvana with all those wonderful positive attributes, but there will be a symmetry now. That which you're realizing is unconditioned, unborn, unceasing, and the awareness of it is unborn, unceasing, unconditioned. Right. There would have to be. Otherwise, you've got either no answer or nihilism. Nihilism is no answer. No answer is just no answer. So that would be all that would be left after the arhat is dead. The moment that arhat is say, okay, arhat just died. The five skandhas have finished. In that very next moment, there would still be a timeless, inconceivable, signless, boundless, all-luminous awareness, but it would be unborn, unconditioned, unceasing. Right? But if it's unborn, because it can't be anything else, if it's unborn, that means that consciousness was not born in the moment that the arhat died. Otherwise, it would be born. If it's unborn, it was unborn, it was unborn. There was no point at which it started. In which case, if that is what is experiencing nirvana a moment after the arhat has died, that consciousness was also present a moment before the arhat died. Otherwise, it would be born. But it can't be born. But if that consciousness was present a moment before the arhat died, it was also present ten years before the arhat died. Otherwise, it would be born, or twenty years before, or a lifetime before, or a hundred lifetimes before. If it's unborn, it's unborn. And the nature of that consciousness, we already know. He's described it. Signless, boundless, and all luminous. If it's unborn, it's always there. Which means even before, the, before she became an Arya, it was already there. After becoming an Arya, before an Arhat, was already there. So what's the nature of that consciousness? We won't find any answers in the Pali Canon because there's no references to it. But how can it not exist? I mean, that is, what I love is when you've looked at all the wrong answers, the right answer is the one that's left. When you found the extremes, the middle way is what's left. When you're not doing Dzogchen meditation incorrectly, you're doing it correctly. So what's the nature of that boundless, signless, boundless, all-luminous consciousness? Well, we get plenty of descriptions here in the Mayana Sutras and now in the quintessence in the Uttara Tantra and specifically here in the Ratna Vibhaga. Three points. That is the Tathagata's Dharmakaya. Well, we're going to give it that name. For the Buddha, who has just slipped into Panevana, having practiced for three countless eons and taught for 45 years, again, the comparison is just like inconceivably ridiculous. That is, if you really had to practice for three countless eons to be able to be a benefit 45 years, the comparison is so minute you can't even see it. 45 years, three countless eons. I mean, really. 
that 45 years kind of is vanishingly small. So it was great, but 45 years is still 45 years. And there's only one planet. So really, I wouldn't quite say, was it worth it? But boy, that was short. Right. Well, of course, the Mayana says, yeah. the Buddha did not become nothing. The Buddha's mind did not become nothing. The Buddha's experience of nirvana continues, but this is Buddha mind we're talking about. And we're going to now call that Dharmakaya. Signless, boundless, all luminous. Dharmakaya. First point, Dharmakaya permeates all sentient beings. This could sound like a creed, like catechism. If you're Mahayana Buddhist, now this is what you have to believe, you have to believe this, you have to believe that. I don't approach it that way. I've never been good at that kind of thing. If it's speaking about somebody else's mind, then it's a matter of belief. If it's speaking about something outside, it's a matter of belief. What do I know? It's, it's outside of me. I don't know. Right? But if what he's talking about is not something outside, if it's something that is utterly inside, Dhammakaya, then it's talking about my own nature. And there I say, well, if you're talking about me, then I'll check. Right? Because now you're looking at something where you don't have to look outside to something you can't see, it's right where you are. And so, if it's true, it may not be inaccessible, which is the assertion here is that your mind right now is permeated by Dharmakaya. And not just your substrate consciousness, not just your rikpa, but as it was said earlier, when thoughts of anger or greed arise, when your thoughts are arising, proliferating, when your mind is dull, when the mind is clear, when you're dreaming, you're awake, when you're in deep sleep, every aspect of your mind at all times, totally permeated by Dharmakaya. There's no part of your mind, no expression of your mind, no mental affliction, no obscuration that is outside of, that stands apart from Dharmakaya. Right? And that's true for every sentient being. That's the first statement. It's a statement about you. So then it's speaking to your intuition. It's speaking to something beyond empirical evidence and beyond logic it's going deeper to another mode of knowing. And then you simply see how that rests. The mind of the Buddha Dharmakaya permeates the mind streams of every sentient being. The Tathagata's thusness is omnipresent, the ultimate nature, the thusness, tatata. The ultimate nature of the Buddha's mind permeates. Omnipresent, permeates all of reality. without differentiation, which would suggest then that it's not like your mind is a container and some alien entity comes in and occupies it like a possession, you know, and then you're bumped out or kind of like cohabiting or something, but filling in the same space is not like that. That in fact, on this deepest level, there's a complete indivisibility. The suchness permeates all phenomena so that, that suchness is, that totally permeates, it's, it's non-dual from all phenomena. That's what it means. Right. And the final point is the Tathagata species, that's the gotra, that's the Buddha nature, the Buddha gotra, or Buddha nature, 
which is a synonym for tathagata garbha, occurs in every sentient being. A way of paraphrasing that is every sentient being without exception has the potential to manifestly realize Buddhahood. There is no sentient being who does not have that capacity to manifestly realize. Right? So those three points. And now we have an answer to a question that is not answered in the Pali Canon. That's for the Buddha's mind. Well, there's a dimension of consciousness that is not contingent upon causes and effect, not contingent upon a body, not among the five skandhas, beyond time, and that realizes emptiness. So that's Mahayana. And then we have our text. So that was kind of a, a building up to. You know. We have the teachings in the Pali Canon, so clear, so crisp, so sharp, and yet dangling questions that there's no resolution within that context. And then we find, there it is, there it is. There's this deeper dimension of consciousness that is unconditioned, is primordial, and does realize emptiness. But there's not much in the way of method in the sutras, in this third turning wheel of Dharma. There's the view, the view of the Buddha nature, Tathagagabha, the view of the view, but the, what's the practical method? How do we go about realizing that? There's not much there. It's mostly the view, the view. Right? What we're getting in Dzogchen, what we find in Mahamudra, what we find in Vajrayana generally, is method for realizing emptiness, realizing Buddha nature, and the primordial non-duality of the two. So that's why we can look to Dzogchen. So I'll just read fairly briefly. I think it's pretty clear, actually. So this, this primordial consciousness, this pristine awareness here on the bottom, page 125, this alone has been created by no one. It's uncreated, unconditioned. It is self-emergent. It spontaneously displays, but not independence upon causes and conditions. It's spontaneous, and so it is called primordial consciousness. You'll see as I'm reading it, I'm bringing it up to date to my current translation mode. Such awareness as this does not originate from the profound instructions of a spiritual mentor, that's obvious, nor does it originate from your sharp intelligence, obvious. Primordially and originally, the natural character of the ultimate reality of the mind, that's chitata, the natural character of the ultimate reality of the mind exists just like that. That's where the pet comes in. That's where tatata comes in. It's just that. That ordinary consciousness which you penetrate right to the ground from which it manifests. But this natural, this natural character has been, previously it has been obscured by conate ignorance. That which you're born with since beginning this time. An unidentifiable beginning of time. It's always been there. Conate, born with. So because of that obscuration by unknowing, by unawareness, you do not recognize or ascertain it, you are not satisfied, you do not believe. You see no evidence, you don't recognize it, don't satisfy it, you're, you're not satisfied, then why would you believe in something you haven't recognized or ascertained? And why haven't you recognized or ascertained it? Because you've not been looking. We're not looking in the right direction. As he said, we keep on looking outwards. And what civilization has been ever more adept? I say this again with respect. What more civilization in recorded history has been more adept at looking outwards since Galileo? Whoa! I mean, that was progress. 
that's just one more indisputable fact. The, the progress in science and technology over these 400 years of looking outwards, phenomenal. Do we know on the basis of all of this extraordinary growth, almost phenomenal, exponential growth of knowledge of the outer universe and all objects of the mind, do we know anything more now in 2014 than we knew 400 years ago with Galileo about the nature of awareness? Nothing. Looking in the wrong place. Any more than Tibetan Buddhists know anything more about the brain in the 20th century than they did in the 16th century. Nothing. They're not looking. Why would they know more and more about something they're not even looking at? When a person died, they'd either cremate them or they'd pound the body into a pulp to give it to the birds. But they're not looking at it that much. Say, well, why should we look? Consciousness is gone. Consciousness is what we care about. This is bird food. So give it to the birds. You don't learn much about the brain that way, but you make the birds happy. So until now, you have remained in confusion. But now grant it to the master of wealth, the bounty, the Buddha nature. Know your own nature. Know your own flaws. That is called identifying the mind. That's it. I repeatedly point out the importance, here's a question, uh, so you, I, repeatedly point out the importance of avoiding reification of nyam as not to solidify and blockade. In case a demon were to appear to me, I think I know what to do, but in the case of tension and energy surges, I'm less sure. How would I even go about reifying tension and pranic fluctuations? Is ignoring them, not worrying about them, knowing they'll go away sooner or later and staying on track, is that enough? No, but it's a good question. Ignoring something doesn't mean to stop reifying. It just means you're ignoring it. Right? And so when we're practicing settling the mind, it's natural state. You have these upheavals coming up, emotions, desires, and so forth and so on. Uh, the teachings are never, well, just close your eyes and wait it out. Don't worry, it'll pass. All things come to pass. Shall we sing a song? You know, no, it's not that. It's not recoiling from it, it's not closing your eyes, and it's also not grasping onto them, identifying with them, hoping for them, fearing for them, or viewing them as having their own nature in and of themselves, but rather being totally relaxed, as loose as you possibly can, and just like cloud formations that form right out of the sky and dissolve back into the sky just being witness to them, but with no hope, no fear, no desire, no aversion, no tentacles of grasping, either that it's really there or, all the more, that it's I or mine. It's in space. There are clouds rising in space, letting them vanish and back into space. That's, the, that's what needs to be done. So it's not ignoring. And so how? We're talking about not just a massage. We're not talking about Valium or Jacuzzi. Oh, relax. You know, or relax. Not that. You can learn that in relaxation techniques all over the world. It's not just MBSR. I mean, it's a very good industry for good reason. People are very, very stressed. So there's plenty of places out there, therapies and drugs and jacuzzis and exercise and yoga and so many things. Just relax, just relax. Yeah, That's not what he's talking about here. This is existential relaxation. 
it cuts right down to the core. That grasping, that core grasping, I am, I am. Give it a rest. Releasing. When the grasping unto I releases, all other grasping will release. As long as the grasping unto I am, I and mine, persists, all other relaxing will be temporary and superficial. So that's that. And let's see if this can be quick. Last night, after following the instructions on dream yoga, I ended up lucid in what seemed to be dreamless sleep. Okay, good. Interesting was that at first I was unsure if I was awake in a dark room or still sleeping. Good question. Yeah. On investigation, I realized I was still asleep, but with a normal dreamscape, missing. Good. So question, how do I make best use of my time spent in dreamless sleep? Good. Practice shamatha, for starters. And that is, relax so that you can maintain that ongoing flow of lucidity. But relax with clarity so that you just don't slip back into non-lucid dreamless sleep. So relax, totally at ease, but maintaining, how many times have we heard this? You know, maintain the flow of cognizance. And then attend closely. Maintain, relax, first of all. And then maintain the flow of cognizance, that's your stability. And then attend closely, that substrate. Is it a sheer nothing? Is there nothing to be known whatsoever? Is it a sheer nothing? Or does it have qualities? Does it have a volume? Does it have a color? Is it black? Is it not black? How big is it? Is it over there? Is it over here? Is there any separation of over here and over there? Examine it closely. And examine it by posing questions to it, observing closely. And when you rest in there, you kind of feel you've got good lab time, you've, got, you've, got, you've extended the lease on this wonderful mind lab where just everything is at rest. Then you may see if you can trigger voluntarily a dream. See if you can catalyze a dream. Why not? They happen spontaneously. Why not happen voluntarily? The parallel, of course, is when you die, then if you are not lucid in the bardo, then don't worry, you'll get another rebirth. Your karma will kick you propel you into your next rebirth. You'll be guided a little bit. I mean, you'll have some sense of guiding it just by your desires, but be careful what you wish for. But the propulsion from that will be your karma, your klesha. You know, that'll be the fodder. That will be the, the gunpowder. And then out you go. So that's one way of going. And then you'll wind up non-lucid when you get there. You are non-lucid when you were propelled, and you'll be non-lucid when the cannonball lands in your next embodiment. And so you came from ignorance and confusion, and you go on with ignorance and confusion. That's why it's called conate. So that's one way of doing it. Or the alternative is die cl clearly, lucidly, as we've seen a number of wonderful teachers do so in the last week, where clearly they are lucid. You don't, you don't remain in Tukdam by being non-lucid. You just die, and your body decomposes quickly. And so die lucidly, pass through the bardo lucidly, and then make a decision. You can practice the poa. That you talked earlier, that'd be a really good idea. Just shift your whole environment and, and then you shoot. Rather than be you being propelled, you be the propeller. You be the one who propels. And you, as he said, like an arrow, like an arrow shot by a strong archer. Why not? Got the, you've got the choice if you're lucid in the bardo. And so then you actually direct your consciousness where you wish, out of wisdom and compassion. And so then you come in lucidly. 
You may alternatively, it's like so many of our teachers, Tukul number 14, Tukul number 16, and so forth and so on, you may decide, well, yes, I could go there, but back there in, you know, in Australia, not too many teachers. Maybe I could propel myself there. Not quite a pure land, but they're not bad. You know? So maybe you propel yourself there, or Tibet, or Bhutan, or what have you. And then you propel yourself there, but you propel yourself, you propel yourself. And you come from a state of clarity and compassion, of lucidity, and you arrive with lucidity. And so, Gantain um, when he was a young boy, His, uh, he was, uh, his father had a very precious statue of the Buddha that, has, that the king of Bhutan had given him. Like, I'm sure it must have been his prized possession. And uh, here's the story. You believe it or not believe it, I don't, I, it's your choice. I have no vested interest in this at all. But I'll tell you the story. It's from Gantin Dugurumaji. And that is this little boy, very young boy, like three-year-old, something like that. He was playing with his daughter's, his, his dad's statue. And I don't remember it exactly, but you can easily find it. I haven't memorized exactly, but the statue actually spoke to him and said, go to, go to this place. It was his monastery from his past life. You should go to this place. And then the statue flew away. <laughs> you know, like, follow me. And so the little boy comes back to his dad, and he got this story. Dad, I was playing with the statue, but it spoke to me and then flew away. Well, if you want a spanking, that's the way to get a spanking, you know. But um, his father attended more closely because he referred to an actual place this little, bit, little boy didn't know anything about. The father figured that out. He said, oh, he, bear in mind he's born in Bhutan, not in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago, the spanking would just continue, and then you get to a therapist. Well, that's why he chose Bhutan. You know. And so then he was quickly, soon thereafter, identified as who he was, and he got the wonderful education he needed to become the wonderful Lama he's become. But that's when you come in lucid. You know. Dujum Lingba, no statue. He's just had visions and visions and visions all the way through. So there we are. Olaso. So enjoy your weekend all day just to do nothing besides practice. And we'll continue. We'll continue in this mode on Monday. See you then.